I'm not Pastor Aaron, so uh, I'll make a mental note, uh, communicating with the uh, congregational prayer. Um, but yeah, that's not Jill's fault. That's totally my fault. So uh, it's an honor to, to bring the word to you this morning. Let me read our scripture passage for today. I will be continuing in our sermon series from 1 Timothy, uh, going to chapter 5, continuing the discussion about the mercy ministry, particularly for the widows that were part of the Ephesian church uh, that Timothy was overseeing. So you have pew Bibles. Um, you can open there or uh, read um, the screen above me, and uh, I've been told that the Pew Bibles are for you. So if you need a Bible and would like to take one home, perhaps you're visiting today, please feel free to take one that is a gift for you. Uh, everybody should be able to have access to a, to a scripture. So our passage today, again, starting at verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed from Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her take care of them. For the church, let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Um, as I prepare to give the, the message today, let's go to our God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, give us open hearts and open minds and ears to hear your word to us this morning. We pray that by the power of your word and the spirit that you use the scripture to form and shape our congregation to be a, a beautiful embodiment of the love and the care and the justice that reflect your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure that um, many of you were as shocked as I was this week to hear about the passing of Tim Keller uh, on Friday morning. Uh, you know, everywhere on Facebook and Instagram and even in, in the news, it's being... Um, you know, it's being uh, mentioned and grieved, and uh, he certainly, I, I didn't know him personally, um, but he was one of the big reasons that I ended up in New York for 16 years. Um, Tim had helped to cast a vision for church planting a uh, thousand churches in New York City, and so when we moved from Michigan to come out east, uh, that was one of the things we were thinking about planting uh, in the metro New York City area. And there, there probably is not a person here that hasn't been impacted or touched by him in some way. Uh, perhaps you've read his books or you've, you've heard um, uh, things that he's said been quoted. And if you think about Pastor Tim Keller and uh, what he's famous for, and you try to explain the, the rise of Redeemer, right? This, um, this evangelical gospel-centered church in the heart of secular New York City, uh, how do you account for the incredible growth that they've shown over the years? Some of you probably even uh, were members of Redeemer Church. And our go-to would be, well, it's the preaching. Clearly, it's the preaching, right? Tim Keller, he's so good. He's so intellectually strong, and he, he, know, he knew how to defend the faith well. But a little-known fact about uh, Tim was that his very first book wasn't about apologetics, and it wasn't really even about theology, his very first book was called Ministries of Mercy and was about caring for the poor and the vulnerable. 
And I have uh, friends who attended Redeemer in the early days who shared stories about the benevolence work that they would do as a church. Um, New York City visiting the elderly in nursing homes was something that Redeemer was doing back in the 80s, right? So the church, um, going back through the centuries, all the way to the first century and even into the third century, has a very rich tradition of caring for the marginalized, and of caring for the poor and caring for the vulnerable. This has always been a priority for the church. Um, the church in the third century was so good at benevolence ministry that even the emperor Julian, uh, those of you who are history buffs and know your, your, um, your Roman history, Julian the apostate, he grew up Christian, but he, he deconverted and he was very angry that Christianity had spread, throughout, uh, spread through, uh, so much throughout the Roman Empire. So he chastised the pagan priests, and he said, you guys, you should look at the Christians. Look at what they're doing to care for the poor. He said, they even care for our poor. Uh, and yet our, our priests and our religions don't seem to be doing anything in order to care for them. So I have a quote. It's so interesting just to see you have a non-Christian person observing the benevolence work of the church and holding it uh, in both contempt, because of how effective it was, but also admiration. He says, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism? Uh, that might throw you for a loop. Because in the ancient world there were so many uh, deities, the Christians were considered atheists by virtue of the fact that they only had one God. So they referred to Christians as the atheists. Um, for it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, again, another kind of derogatory reference to the Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So the early church, even into the third century, excelled at care of mercy, caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized. Why? Well, a cynic might say, well, they're just trying to gain members. They, they give out money and they care for the poor because they're just trying to get people to, uh, to, to join their church. But that's really cynical. It doesn't really fully explain the, the extent of the, of the care that went into this kind of work. We could get real logical and say, well, clearly the reason they did it is because they were commanded to do it. The Old Testament taught that, uh, they, that they were to care for the poor and they were to, you know, leave the gleanings in the field and so forth. And even Jesus talk, talked about caring for the poor. If you have two shirts, you know, give to the one who has none and that type of thing. But even pure obedience really doesn't explain the kind of generosity that we, that we see happening in the New Testament. You can read about in, in Acts. And what was the mark of the generosity and the mercy of the first century was its spontaneity. It wasn't something that they did because they were required to do it, because they had to do it, because they were, had ulterior motives. But rather, it was in joyful response to the gospel of Jesus Christ that their hearts overflowed with generosity for the poor and for the marginalized. They had seen Jesus Christ, the Son of God, make himself poor and make himself a servant, and come into the world as a baby, live with them as a man for 33 years, and pour out his life for them. And they'd seen him give his life on a cross, and die, and then be resurrected. And so they believed, and, and saw it, and they were filled with the Spirit. They believed that, that God, who is rich and powerful, came down 
poured himself out so that the poor could become rich. And so it was a, a, a spontaneous, generous thankfulness for what God had done, the love of God revealed in Christ that they too wanted to emulate in their community. And so as I start getting into this passage today to talk about the priorities for mercy ministry in the church, what we have to realize is that the gospel is not just good news about how you get saved, right? It's not just good news about how God forgives your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. That is a part of it. That is a, a major part of it, right? Don't get me wrong. But the gospel is an invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus came as a king to establish a new reality, to change things, to turn the world upside down. He came to care for the poor and for the least and to create a new, you could call it a reality, a society, a community in which the, the, the least are the greatest and the greatest are the least. That was his goal. And so the gospel is not just about how we're saved, but it is an invitation to be a part of a new kingdom and to be a part of a new community that reflects the heart of God in the way we seek justice, in the way we care for the poor and the marginalized, in the way we do life together, okay? It's overflowing with love. But that doesn't mean we can sit around and sing kumbaya and think that everything is good. We just, okay, we just love everybody and everybody will be fine, right? It's not quite that simple. And there's a breakdown because we live in a fallen world and because humans are human beings. Life is complicated. And so it's not enough that the church has a desire to do benevolence or to do mercy, right? We saw in Acts chapter 6, um, I'm sure you're familiar about the story where the, the Grecian widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. The Hebraic widows, they're getting food, but the Grecian widows are not getting, uh, not getting food. So, so good intentions is not enough. It's not enough that we, okay, we'll love people, we'll give away stuff, everybody, everything will be fine. It's not simple like that. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter part of the letter written to Timothy about how to manage things well in Ephesus is to provide uh, house rules, as Pastor Aaron talked about last week, but also to give some wisdom and say, listen, yeah, the church is generous. The church is trying to help the poor and the marginalized, but we don't want to get taken advantage of, and we want to make sure that the way we do this causes uh, good and not harm, because harm is, is certainly, uh, if intentionality and wisdom are not put into the practice of mercy, then like you have in Acts 6, you can have a big mess. So this, this section we're looking at today, priorities for mercy ministry so that we can make the most of the opportunities that we have and do justice in a way uh, that glorifies and honors God. Priority number one, I think I have this on the screen for us today. Spiritual needs are primary, but material needs cannot be ignored. One of the things, if I was to make a very large generalization about churches, I think that we could say that liberal churches tend to focus on the material and spiritual needs of people. But conservative churches tend to be much more preoccupied and focused with the spiritual needs, right? Chances are, if you go to an evangelical, non-denominational church that's conservative, right, they're going to be preaching the gospel. They're going to be talking about sin. They're going to be helping people know how to have salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. The liberal church is going to be much more focused on social justice, needs in the community, feeding the poor, and so forth. But in the Bible, those things are never opposed to each other, but there's a, there's a balance for how 
uh, justice and love, spiritual needs and material needs can go hand in hand. But I will say that the primary focus is always on the spiritual needs, but never at the expense of overlooking the material or physical needs. And that is what we see happening here as well in the letter of 1 Timothy as Paul is uh, addressing concerns that are both of the of the spiritual on the spiritual side of things, but then also in chapter five, uh, attending to um, attending to the uh, physical needs of the elderly widows. I will say that it is it is clear through Scripture that our spiritual needs are certainly more important. When we're talking about our spiritual needs, we're talking about salvation, we're talking about faith in Christ, we're talking about all of eternity. So there is a lot on the line when it comes to our spiritual needs. But imagine I'm trying to have a conversation with you, and I'm trying to tell you about Jesus, but all the oxygen has been sucked out of the room. And so I'm saying, you know, you got to believe in Jesus. you got to repent of your sin. But you're like, I can't breathe. I, you know, there's no oxygen. And so the thing is, if you don't have oxygen, if your basic needs aren't being met, Right? You're, you're not going to have an ear to listen to what I'm, what I'm trying to offer you. I'm trying to help you, but, but you have a fundamental problem. And so, uh, and so that is why you know, we can offer good news and we can tell people about Jesus. But if at the end of the day, people are in desperate need, right? Think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? He lays out that you got the pyramid, you got the basic things like, like physiological needs. Like you need food, you need oxygen, you need water, you need community, right? These are basic things fundamental needs. I can tell you about the gospel, but if I don't have a care uh, for your basic needs, your basic human physical needs, the chances are that all my good intent and my good communication with you is simply uh, not going to reach you. And so it's clear in Scripture that even though the primary concern is the eternal, is this the, the spiritual, that God himself also cares about your material and physical well-being. And I'm not saying that we as a church have a responsibility to make sure that everybody's living in luxury and that we're all wealthy, but, but God does care about, about your basic human needs. And because God cares about it, we too, as a church, are called to care about these things. Classic passage that kind of demonstrates this, James 1.27. I think Pastor Aaron might have uh, mentioned it last week. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Paul, in First Timothy, spends a lot of time talking about spiritual needs. He's talking about the doctrine in the church, chapter 1, verse 3. He's talking about good order in the church, how things are operated and how things run in the church, chapter 2. Chapter 3, he's talking about qualifications for godly leaders. In chapter 4, he's talking about Christian lifestyle and, and exhorting Timothy as a leader in the church to, to model through his life the kind of life that is godly and that reflects Christ-likeness. But then we get to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is a very, very long section specifically on caring for the material needs of the elderly widows. And so it's very clear that in the same way that he cares about the spiritual needs, he cares also about the material needs and wants to be sure that the church in Ephesus is doing a good job of caring for those in the community who might have serious serious needs. And not only that, but it is part of the vision of the Bible 
that, and this is, you track this from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It is part of the vision of the Bible that when the people of God are living in a righteous way and when they're following God and they're worshiping God and they're seeking God, that God pours out an abundance of blessing and that that blessing combined with the generosity of the people means that everybody in the community is provided for. Moses said, there need be no needy persons among you because the bounty of God and the blessing of God, the overflowing abundance that God provides to a community combined with the generosity of the community, it, it overflows so that everybody has enough. And that wasn't just a pipe dream because in Acts chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, post-resurrection, post-ascension, that is exactly what you see happening. You see people believing in Christ. You see the Holy Spirit coming on the, on the people and then you see spontaneous, overflowing generosity, and the words of Moses are fulfilled in the New Testament when it says that there were no needy persons among them. And so this is part of the vision of social justice and the vision of mercy is that God's people who are faithful, who, who care about God, who are worshiping, who are putting their faith and trust in Christ, receive blessing, the blessing is poured out, those who are needy are taken care of. So priority one, a balance between the spiritual and material needs. Moving right along to priority number two, Christian mercy ministry is holistic. Care is meant, I'm going to tell you what this point is about, and then I'll describe it more. Care extends beyond handouts and requires personal investment in the life of others. Now, this is the, uh, the part where we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty and dicey, of the, uh, dicey parts of this passage. Pastor Aaron came into my office uh, earlier this week. By the way, I love, I love my office. I've never had an office quite like this overlooking the nice street over there. I got my plants, got my coffee. <laughs> I'm all set up, but he apologized that I got stuck with this passage on my very first time preaching for you all, but I, I told him it would be okay. But we're going to, I had to do a lot of work to try to figure out what this is all about. So, so here we go, okay? The widow support in Ephesus was problematic. It was a program that was dysfunctional. It was falling apart, okay? And so Paul is writing to, to, to Timothy to address some of these problems. I want us all to realize that what is said here has to be balanced with other parts of Scripture when it teaches about the care of widows, okay? What, what is said here in 1 Timothy it addresses a particular place and situation. Uh, he's speaking into that, so we can't just automatically take everything that we see here and apply it verbatim to our own context. Okay, you with me? Okay. So what, was the, what, what were the problems that were happening with the widow support in Ephesus? So let's look at verse 11 through 15 again. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So what is going on here? I, I think we can describe, right, 
We're trying to recreate a context. We're trying to understand, based on the clues that are here in the scripture, what exactly is the situation uh, that is going on here with the, with the widow care happening in Ephesus? Well, first off, the one problem that, that we can certainly, I think, conclude was that the, the neediest widows weren't being prioritized. So remember, he, he talks about the true widows. He, he refers to that Pastor Aaron's passage from last week in the end of, in verse 16, my passage today too. So the, he distinguishes the true, the true widow from the, the other widows. But basically what he means by the true widow is simply, uh, simply that these are, are older ladies who, whose husbands have died who have no kids and they have no grandkids and they have no extended family. So to, you got to understand, to be a widow in the first century, it is a very, very precar- economically precarious place to be. I mean, right, you, you, you pretty much ha- have no recourse. You, you have no fallback. So these are the, the most desperate. But what we can guess, if Paul has to say this, what we can guess is that uh, the, the neediest ones were being overlooked. You had widows who were younger. Or you have widows maybe who have money, have more money. They're not as needy. So there was an equity in the way that the, the, the money was being distributed. And so you have, you have widows who are less needy who are getting taken care of, but then you have the widows who are, who are truly widows, who are truly needy, they're being overlooked. So that's problem number, number one. Problem number two was that apparently some of the women that were receiving these funds were, were using that money, and then instead of being productive and, and getting involved in the life of the church, instead they were going around and getting into trouble. And so because they have this affiliation with the church, they're going around and, and gossiping. And in the, in the Greek text, it actually says they're, they're learners of gossip. In other words, they, these Remember, we're talking about particular women at a particular time and place here. We're not making any general comments about women in general. These particular widows were becoming professional gossips. And he says they're going around from house to house, and they're spreading heresy, and they're spreading false teaching, and they're, they're gossiping about their neighbors, and they're causing a big problem. And everybody knows that these widows are on the church's payroll. They're, they're getting money from the church, and yet here they are giving the church a bad name through their lifestyle. And the neediest widows are not being taken care of. So, so that's not fair. That's not okay, right? Obviously. Uh, problem number three, and this explains the particularly harsh language that Paul uses to talk about widows who get remarried. Because that's the thing when you look here. It, it's, it's difficult in verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. What? So it seems like he's saying there's something wrong about getting remarried, but it's actually not the case because just a little while later, he's going to say explicitly, no, if you're a younger widow, if you're under 60, you should get married. So, so he doesn't, Paul doesn't have a problem with getting married per se. The, the, the challenge, the, the issue that, it, that he's facing um, is that they have abandoned their former faith. And the commentaries lead us to believe, lead me to believe, that the abandoning of a former faith means not that they've broken some sort of celibacy vow, not that they've, right? Because some people read this and they think, well, maybe there was an order of widows. There was. There was an order of widows, but not here. There's an order of widows was developed later in the second and third century. It was a thing, kind of like early convents. But that's not what he's talking about here. When he says they abandoned their former faith, he means literally they had faith in Christ and now they don't. Right? They're not living as Christians anymore. 
So, so they followed their passions and they got married. Okay, we've got to be really careful here. He's not saying there's anything wrong with getting remarried. He's saying that these particular widows are following their passions and they're using the church's money to live, to live for their passions. They're getting into trouble. They're turning away from Christ. It could be that they're getting remarried, but they're not marrying in the faith. He says they've, let, they've left the faith, but they're still getting supported by the church. They've, they've, they're straying after Satan, but they're getting supported by the church. And meanwhile, we have real widows in real need who aren't getting supported, who aren't getting taken care of. So, so you see, it's a, com- it's a complicated situation, and, and there's different layers to it. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, listen, we've we got to put some parameters on this. We've got to be clear about who are the real widows, and, and what's the, what, is, what kind of help are we giving them, and what are we expecting of them? So in verse 5 and 9, he says that they have to be over 60. In the Roman Empire, 60 was considered the aid. 60 was very old back then. All right, 60 now is not so, you know, yeah, it's not so old now. But back then, if you're, if you're 60, you know, that was considered, yeah, there's no chance that uh, this person's going to get married. So you're kind of beyond the age of getting married. So uh, he says they got to be over 60. They have to be a one-man woman. In other words, they have to be, they have to have been faithful to their husbands. They, they can't be adulteresses. Um, and then in verse 5 and 16, he says they have to be true widows. But there's more. There's more about the expectations, and here we go back to verse 9 and 10. I think I have it on the screen. Let a widow be enrolled on the list if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. That's quite a list. Right? It almost seems like Paul is being exclusionary towards uh, older women who don't me- uh, measure up on the list. So that doesn't seem fair. Um, but again, I ju- it would just remind us that this is a particular time and situation. If you look to other parts of the scripture, like in Acts 6, that system of benevolence seems to be much more, uh, much broader. So he's not saying that we care for these, this certain select group of widows and then everybody else, yeah, we're going to ignore their needs. We're not going to worry about them. That's not what he's, what he's saying here. He's making mention of a list. What's the list? He said, don't, you know, let them not be enrolled unless X, Y, and Z. What is the list? We said it's not a list about some sort of an order of the widows. So it's something different. The commentaries conclude that it is a, is a special designation of a true widow who has real legitimate need that does not have family support at all. So they're pretty desperate, but they are a regular, ongoing member of the community. The fact that it's a list means there's some, there's some kind of a relationship. So it's not a one-time benevolence donation, but rather it's a, it's a, it's a recurring stipend of some sort, which means that these elderly widows have some sort of of, uh, ongoing relationship with the church, which we call what? Membership, right? So, so, So what he's really talking about is making sure that our members, that our covenant members, are the people who are regularly involved um, are being taken care of, and that, that people who are giving the church a bad name, who have left the church, who are not involved, or who don't have real need, that we are not looking to support them while we're turning a blind eye to the truly needy people within our midst, okay?
Now, I realized that was a lot, but in the end, the, the point I want to make about all of this is pretty simple. And that's that Paul does not and would not condone any kind of Band-Aid, one-size-fits-all approach to benevolence. The benevolence is holistic. And what that means is if you have to do this level of work to try to find out who are the real widows, how are they doing, what is their lifestyle, that shows relationship. It shows engagement, right? I think oftentimes, and I realize it's only my first Sunday preaching here, so I want to be careful what I say, but in kind of our more white, Western, kind of savior mentality, that sometimes we who have wealth and we who have privilege and we who have power, right, we, we see a need, we want to meet the need, we want to fix the need, we want to come in, pay the check, come in, do the service project, and we feel good, we, we, we helped. Uh, but the thing is, life is much more complicated than that. And, and God cares about whole people, not just material needs, but really whole people. How are they doing? How are these elderly widows doing? And he does not want a church that has some sort of sloppy program where we just, oh, we could give this person this much and this person this much without really thinking through, how are these people doing? Are we really ministering to whole persons? Are we walking alongside the people who are in need? Not just trying to fix their problems, but getting to know them and really shepherding them and caring for them. You can't just write a check. The, the situation is too complicated. You can't just write a check and say, job well done. And I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for service projects and that if you meet somebody on the street and they need money, that there isn't a time and place to, to give a buck or give a, a couple dollars. But, but Paul is calling Timothy, who is calling the church in Ephesus, to be involved in a level of care that is a lot more than just giving a handout. You see what I'm saying? It requires relationships, requires getting to know people, not a Band-Aid approach. And so while service projects have value and have their place, uh, what we are called to is a lot more than that. And here is the, the crazy thing. And this leads me to my third and final point, which is that even the elderly widows are called to do a lot more than that according to what Paul is talking about in this passage. So priority number three, and I'll, uh, this is my closing priority, seeing givers and receivers in the church as having equal and valuable participation in the church. The church, according to Paul, should not be a place where we divide up the haves and the have-nots, those who have the resources and those who need the resources. Right? That is what our culture does. Our society likes to do that. We have the answers. We are rich. We're powerful. We can help you, the poor person. You know, we can go into the neighborhood and fix, you know, band-aid approach to fixing these problems. We have the answers. You, you need what we have. That is not Paul's approach. But rather, it is much more about seeing a, a partnership between those who have uh, sustainable power and they, they, they have... Um, What's the word? They, they have, uh, you know, they're taken care of. They have um, stability. Sorry. Blake, yeah, on the word. They have stability. But, but the people who are needy, the people who are in need, the people who are vulnerable, they're not just recipients of your charity. Look at the picture that he paints of the, of the widows here. He says they're praying day and night. 
These widows, they're washing the feet of the saints. They're putting their hope in God. They're hospitable. They're, they're welcoming children. They're, they're taking care of children. The, the elderly widows that are described here, he holds them in high, high honor. The whole, the whole passion is, is, is not, it's not, it's not actually at the end of the day about just giving money to, to the poor and the marginalized, but it's about recognizing who's greatest in the kingdom of God because this was Jesus' whole message that the poor and the vulnerable and the weak and the people who are least in the world are greatest in the kingdom of God. Paul sets this very, very high expectation for what the, the lives of the elderly widows ought to look like because he has a high expectation for what church membership looks like. And I would suggest to you that this list here in 9 and 10 about what the elderly widows ought to be doing is nothing less than what Paul would expect of any elderly widow that was attending a Christian church in the first century. This is normal. It's normal for the widows to be serving in this way. Now, I realize, and I realize if you're tracking with me, that, that might feel a little bit offensive. It might even feel a little bit shocking. Well, really? He expects widows to do all that? He expects widows to wash the feet of the saints? But friends, right, and John, who's washing the feet of the saints? Jesus, Jesus is washing the feet of the saints. Exactly. He says, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of God, become a servant of all. Paul's not trying to set high expectations for the widows. He's trying to honor them. By the way, right, if you know anything about first century culture, if I'm washing your feet, what does that probably mean? Probably means you've come to my house because that's the first thing you do for somebody when they come into your house in the first century. Putting two and two together, one and one, sorry, putting one and one together, what does that mean? It probably, probably is indicating that these elderly widows are hosting groups in their homes. They're showing hospitality. Why are they washing the feet of the saints? Because the saints are coming to their house. So the widows, they're, they're involved. They're participating. They're not these needy people who that we look down upon them and we ignore them most of the time because they're not that significant in our society. No, the, the widows have a place of honor. You see, they have a place of honor in the community. The whole chapter starts, he says, honor the widows. It's not just about money, but he says, the teach, later on, this is next week, the teaching elders are worthy of a double honor. But here, the widows are worthy of honor. So <laughs> you with me? You got teaching elders there, and you got the widows here, the, the, the groups that he is particularly calling attention to to say we need to honor. Pastor Aaron and I went over three minutes, sorry. Uh, he said we need to honor them. So, friends, what does this mean? Priority number three is that when it comes to mercy ministry in the church, it, we, what we don't do is we say, we, we divide up between the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor, and then elevate the status of the rich. But, but rather, we, we see our involvement in the church as covenant partnership. We are working together for the kingdom of God. Everybody is involved. Everybody has value. Everybody has a voice. Everybody, even the elderly widow. And we could extend that to all people who are vulnerable and marginal in our society. They all have a vital and important role to play in the life of the church. And that, my friends, is why the church reflects the kingdom of God in a way that no other earthly community can do so. So, friends, I'll close. We said that in the beginning, this mercy and social justice is a spontaneous, not compulsory, overflow of the gospel at work in your life and my life. We are poor, we are sinners, but we believe in a God 
who took our place and he died on a cross for us. He made us rich by becoming poor. And so may the generosity of God and the love of God be at work in your life. May you find yourself caring for the poor and the vulnerable more and more. And may this church be a church that models the beauty of God in the way we partner together. Wealthy, poor, haves, have-nots, working together for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I lift up this congregation to you. I'm so excited to, to be here, to be a part of Grace Church. And we live in a community of abundance a community of prosperity, but we know that so much of the world, Lord, is in need, and so much of our, our surrounding neighborhoods, um, they, they don't have what we have. They don't have the resources. And perhaps we even have people within our own congregation who, who are struggling or in need. I pray, open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see the needs. But Lord, help us to repent, too, of this attitude that looks down on the poor, that looks down on the marginalized, that sees ourselves somehow superior to them. Help us truly to embrace what Christ taught, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. May this church, this local church, be a congregation in which your, by, by the power of your spirit, your generosity, your love for the poor marginalized is being reflected in benevolence, in mercy, and in our shared corporate life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.